0: Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, through Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 101 of the podcast, the topic is the future of augmented consciousness. Our guest is Divya Chander, neuroscientist and non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In this conversation, we talk about how Divya Chander became a physician, neuroscientist, futurist, and entrepreneur with a twin passions for exploring the brain and space. I ask her what dreams are. We discuss heightened states of awareness and get to the topic of consciousness. What is it and how to alter it? Divya gets into optogenetics, which is targeted activation or silencing of light-sensitive protein channels selectively expressed in neurons, and how she uses the EEG waveform to monitor brain activity during anesthesia. We talk about the augmentation movement. Who are they and what do they want? We explore the body's electric circuitry and eventually get to space travel within and beyond our solar system. Divya is helping to figure out how to create human hibernation, and is also involved with SETI, The Search for Extraterrestrials. Finally, we discuss the need for regulation in outer space. I'll stop here. I think you just have to listen to the episode to find out more. It's a long one. Divya, how are you today? I'm
1: doing really well. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. So here's my plan. We're going to try to understand a little bit about you. And then we're going to try to understand something about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And after that, all bets are off. (laughs) That's the plan. So the first thing I wonder is, you know, who is Divya Chander and how on earth did you get so deep into consciousness? Because I do get a couple of things. You know, I understand biology degree at Harvard that I can understand. I understand an interest in space and other things i understand Mm -hmm. a phd in neuroscience i you know you you became a, a physician but none of that really explains the lengths to which you have taken this discussion on consciousness so i want you to trace us back a little bit to young divya and what was going on
1: um so young divya from very very early age six or seven years old uh had always wanted to explore the stars. And she used to look through um, telescopes and look up at the stars and just want to be there. Uh, But she also realized that it wasn't, it it was even back back the earliest of ages, it felt like a very deep spiritual need, Uh, something I wanted to be connected to that was larger than myself. And sometimes when I was a child, and I know this sounds crazy, I used to sit on my bed and I used to close my eyes and try to send my consciousness out into the universe almost as if I could try and engineer an out-of-body experience. And I never really achieved that. A few times I almost felt like I might have been leaving, and then I got so frightened, tried to call myself back. But I think the larger story behind this is that I've been thinking from a very early age about what it meant to be connected to the universe, the fact that I, I sort of grokked deep in my being that we were born of stardust, I was always really interested in um, physics and quantum mechanics and, you know, uh, at some point I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, um, physicists were talking a lot about the theory of everything, why you couldn't unify the four um, major forces in physics. And I said to myself, you know, the reason they probably can't do this and they can't tie gravitation into all of this is that this is what other people call God, you know. Uh, and then I began to think that the four degree um, background Kelvin radiation must be owned the universal consonant, and I, you know, as so I just, um, I don't know, it's just where where I was, where I went, and I I was determined that I would find some way to more methodically study this process as I got older.
0: So then, what happened then is you combined your passions for the brain with space. And it became a passion for consciousness, even that isn't so hard to under' it's so easy to understand unless we really unpack it i I want you to perhaps just describe for us what you what is consciousness now clearly this is a philosophical construct it's a medical construct. it is many things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but the debate today, and you are involved i guess in all of those debates, how would you describe it in sort of a a very like day-to-day sense and let's start there and then we let's kind of you know walk walk our way uh into
1: well people have this is the day-to-day sense this is the lay understanding um people have a sense that um consciousness for them has something to do with awareness uh it has to do with the fact that perhaps they are awake that perhaps they're paying attention to something uh, some people associate consciousness with the fact that they can pick up a mirror and they look at themselves and they have this kind of self-awareness. They actually know that that's them, that that's not an other. Um, other people sort of feel like, well, maybe it's the fact that I can kind of integrate information coming from from outside and, and make sense of it. And this is what it means to be conscious. This is my conscious awareness. None of these things really explains what consciousness is because when I go to sleep at night, um, I sort of. At sometimes I go deep into this gravity well. At other times, I wander through this area where um, I am actually constructing new realities, and I'm quite aware of my surroundings. Of, it's what we call dreaming. In fact, there's actually a huge uh, discussion about whether dreaming is a state of heightened consciousness or a state of deep depressed consciousness. Um, I also noticed that you know you can go from point A to B whether I'm driving from work to home, and then suddenly I'm there. I have no idea how that transition occurred. I don't know where I was, uh, but I can't say that made me unconscious. There are people who have strokes where they lose like, awareness of an entire part of their body, and we don't consider them to be unconscious. And then as far as self-awareness goes, when you show a baby their reflection in a mirror Do not initially recognize it as themselves. But very few parents would say that my child is not conscious just because they don't have that degree of self-awareness. And there are animals actually that develop it at a at a younger age. So I realize that um, the idea that what we hold as the contents of our consciousness is not enough to explain it. So maybe that's a that's a good starting place. Most people Feel in their gut that that's what it means to be conscious, but it has to be so much more than this.
0: So I, uh, let's stay with that for a second. I want to ask you more about how you see dreams, but but before that, I've understood that in infant research, intentionality is a big uh, kind of concept because with with kids, if you you know, even if they can't recognize themselves, the first step that happens is that they at least are. Uh, could be observed to be intentional about some of their actions. To what extent is consciousness and intention uh, related? Because if you're saying we're aware, in at least in common parlance, we're sort of saying what we're doing is intentional. And you know, this obviously has a legal meaning and all kinds of things. But uh, to what a degree does it matter whether you are intent to do something or not? You know, when it comes to consciousness and awareness of uh you know of something
1: um i don't think intention necessarily has anything to do with it it's a it's another way that we focus and direct the spotlight of attention but i don't think that intention um is necessary to be conscious mm-hmm. although consciousness is necessary to have intention uh, so it doesn't go both ways Yeah, you know, to your point um there are it's not a large group of people but there are some neurolinguists and neuropsychologists who actually believe that little, like infants, human infants are not technically conscious till they gain language. And
0: right, right.
1: That's another.
0: Well, the reason I, I guess I brought it back to to, to kids and infants is um, when you think about dreaming, also that's it's an interesting concept because uh, to your point about language, can you really dream before you? have language? Or in other words, where is this all coming from? So if you want to kind of boil it down, one scientific strategy, I guess, would be to go as early as you can and start studying humans super early and then say, okay, it evolved from something. Is it as simple as that? Or is that not at all a path when you study consciousness?
1: Actually, um, evolution is an important piece, of it. it's interesting you asked me that. So you don't want, let me just take a step back and actually um, define a couple of axes because I think that, um, might yeah. help this process a bit. So, uh, there is a Belgian neuroscientist. Uh, he's actually a neurologist. He studies coma. His name is Steven Lores. And he came up with this idea that rather than just looking at consciousness as a unidimensional thing, let's look at it on at least two axes. So let's put, uh, a Y axis And that y axis um, basically has all the things that we hold within the content of our consciousness, everything that we are aware of, the math problem we're doing, our to do list, um, whatever we're holding conscious awareness. And then on the x axis, we have what you could call level of consciousness. Now, this is um, what we all seem to intuit and agree on, uh, which is, for instance, if you were to get drowsy right now or you were to fall asleep, you'd be less conscious than I was if I were awake and and cogitating and aware. And, you know, as we go through different states, let's take general anesthesia, what I do for a living. When I Mm -hmm. administer a general anesthetic, uh, when we tell patients that we're gonna help you fall asleep, that's not what it is. Because if all we did was help you fall asleep, as soon as the surgeon cut into you, you would wake up screaming with a scalpel. No, we put your brain into a much, much deeper gravity well. Um, and then people like Dr. Lori study coma, and that's an even deeper gravity well. Uh, way, way down to the origin, which is kind of a form of brain death, right? So let's now take these two axes. So you have the x-axis and the y-axis. Um, and if you look at a very, very high number on both of them, content and level, that's what it is to be awake, aware, communicating what you and I are doing right now. And you can imagine that as you begin to get drowsy and fall asleep, you fall back a little bit on a line, on sort of this diagonal line formed by these two axes. And then as I anesthetize you, you fall back a little further till you get to coma, which is pretty close to that origin point. But then there are exceptions and this, might ha- this will help to amplify some of the questions you ask, like dreaming. Dreaming is a state um, where the level of consciousness is very low, but the content is really high, right? In fact, if you were to image a brain that is dreaming, it looks very much like an awake brain, parts of the brain are very, very electrically active and excited. And um, there are also people who have normal sleep-wake cycles, but they've had trauma or injury to the brain. We say they're in a minimally conscious state. um, And their level of consciousness can be very high when they're awake. There's almost no content there. Right? So there are things that deviate off these axes and I've often wondered what meditation is and where it falls on this on this system. And you know whether there's a third axis and almost like an operating system. access
0: that's fascinating <laughs> i i wanted to to understand because i had i guess simplistically thought of awareness as a continue continuum right where you're like less mm-hmm. aware to more aware but you're saying uh I, I, and in that i was going to ask you you know about heightened states of awareness because that's also a, a massive thing that you know the f- the future holds perhaps mm-hmm. where we can uh not just you know put anesthesia so we can operate on people but I I certainly know that there are a lot of people who wish that they could achieve sustained heightened awareness Mm -hmm. beyond caffeine, right? So to be able to do great feats. But even caffeine, I'm assuming, which we can get to, like that is a true stimulant that Mm -hmm. really does alter many things about our experience. I mean, certainly um, it it is fairly powerful in and of itself and ancient, uh, you know, at that, so but tell me about awareness. How does awareness work? Is it degrees?
1: I, I think, it, it
0: like you said, d- different directions.
1: So let's put it this way: this is such an uh, this was uh, when this went off for me. It was like a eureka moment. Let's look at that first. That x-axis again. That's the level of consciousness, and um, toggling that axis means that uh, whatever whatever neural network you're looking at, it can be awake, it can be asleep. It can be anesthetized it turns out we can also because we're going to bring in animals and plants into this now we can anesthetize animals and with the same anesthetics that work on us and in fact we can not only just anesthetize mammals and vertebrates we can anesthetize invertebrates things like fruit flies and it turns out that fruit flies have an analog gene um, that causes the equivalent of human narcolepsy in them and Humans who have narcolepsy show this very interesting feature under anesthesia. They go down just like anybody else, but when you wash the anesthetic out of their brain, it takes much longer for their brains to stitch back together. And in fact, if you um, give them the kind of drugs that would wake them up normally from a narcoleptic um, episode, that will take them out of general anesthesia. It turns out fruit flies have that analog gene. If the fruit fly has it, they express the exact same behavior that phenotype under our general anesthetics. And that's very interesting because what it means is that level of consciousness is conserved through the entire animal kingdom, through evolution. And in fact, there is now some evidence that um, you can apply anesthetics to plants, at least plants that have motor movements and anesthetize them. However, that other axis you keep asking me about, awareness, directing your attentional spotlight, that content axis, I believe that 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 particular axis is modified by evolution. Um, it's the part of, to use some other terms, it's not phylogenetically conserved. That thing has been free to evolve. So one axis stays kind of conserved in evolution and the other one is, has been free to evolve. And that's where I think we are.
0: Wow, that's super interesting. You made me think of an interview I I did a a month ago on vertical farming, and uh, uh, the gentleman there was pointing out that the plants, the the greens that they were growing, uh, manipulating various factors, still seem to, at a fundamental level, realize that it's not summer, Mm -hmm. if it is indeed winter. So, uh, you know, it seems like the plant kingdom, uh, for one, seems to have some sort of cycle that it is aware of, even though it is being manipulated from all outer yeah. degrees, you know, with temperature and light and, and maybe nutrition, to think that the cycle, and indeed, you know, they do have, I think he has 14 seasons. you know, mm-hmm. 14 harvests with these uh these plants, which is unusual, so you are able to manipulate, but there still are some cycles that are that are not. It, would, it was just interesting.
1: Well, it's as if the farmer is like trying to control the inputs and trying to tell the plant, okay, look, <laughs> this, yeah. this is what you imagine. What's going to happen when we? Do, this is what you're going to do? What happens when we take our plants into space? What are they going to do? Because that's in fact right. one of the. Um, those are the, some of the earliest biology experiments we have ever done and on orbit station. Um, and we're planning on those experiments for the moon now, as we're looking to, to expand to the moon. How are plants going to deal with the cues that they are receiving, just like human brains are altered in both microgravity and radiation environments? What are they going to do? You know, uh, you know another um, interesting uh, thing that this brings up is whether plants on this planet are conscious, but the problem with us, the problem with us as humans is we're using the same instrument to measure and understand the uh, the object of what we're measuring, right? So
0: that kind of calls the whole nature of science into question somewhat, right? Because we're actually measuring the system we are claiming we are objective to. That's, that's right. always been kind of the
1: So you've got two processes when you've got a possible like a Heisenberg uncertainty kind of process going on. So the object that is being measured is being changed by the device or the instrument that's doing the measurement. But there's a second problem that people don't talk about, and that is um, it's very possible that consciousness has a very different spatiotemporal um, framework than our brains can comprehend because we're constrained by um, the frequency with which our nerve cells can fire. Um, And these spatial um, sort of in three dimensions, what we can perceive as an organism, Uh, you know, mountains and ancient trees. there, There are all kinds of things that go through cycles that are so much larger. And then there are things that are microscopic that, for instance, vibrate like subatomic particles at frequencies also that we can't perceive. And so I wonder, like, for instance, these connected networks of root systems or mycelia from mushrooms, Do they constitute conscious networks, but at such different spatiotemporal scales that we can't even comprehend that they exist?
0: So you're you're maintaining that the natural kingdom, the entire ecosystem has to, and and eventually we will be able to find vocabulary for the consciousness of, of, of nature, which I guess even just 10 years ago put you into a very specific type of scientist, right? You know, the the kind of scientist that you would say, well, you know, it's in his or her aging years and they this is what they came to and they typically write a book about it. And that's like their magnum opus, but very, very late in their career. Nowadays, it seems to me that what you're talking about isn't, I mean, it's becoming more mainstream because we're starting to at least scratch the surface of measuring these things. And I want you to maybe use this as a pivot into sort of what are the empirical types of data that you have access to in your study of consciousness as of 2021? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that's a great question. So uh, despite what I just said, I wanna um, throw in the disclaimer that I've also wanted to be very careful as a scientist to generate hypotheses have specific predictions that you can measure and then say the hypotheses held up or did not. Um, And so what do we measure as scientists? Well, um, one of the reasons I became an anesthesiologist was basically to manipulate people's brains in this way. You can do it safely, you can do it reversibly without brain damage, and then you can study the neural networks underneath. what I actually do, and I often will do this in an operating room, but I've also used optogenetics to do this. I measure the electrical readout activity coming from the brain, something called the electroencephalogram, uh, while I'm manipulating these neural networks underneath. And then I see what that tells me. Uh, There are scientists that have looked at fMRI. So that is basically sort of a magnetic, it's a little bit delayed in time, but it's kind of a magnetic picture that changes with time that tells you which parts of the brain are metabolizing and which ones are silent um, others have used transcranial magnetic stimulation and looked to see where if they stimulate the brain with a magnetic pulse what happens to that signal turns out awake brains that signal spreads uh, and in brains that are more depressed that signal becomes very very tight and limited and it doesn't spread anywhere and hmm. That being able to study brains across a spectrum that are awake, that are sleeping, that are anesthetized, that are comatose, actually enables us to compare at least the x-axis, the level axis, um, mm. and to ask, well, what do they have in common when we're doing these scientific measurements? And there's some really kind of cool things. Um, can I share them? Because they're... Mm, yeah, I mean, they might yeah, be a little. <laughs> um so one of them is something called functional connectivity, uh, and that sounds like a fancy word, but all it means is that uh, you and I, people don't maybe realize this, but as we're awake and aware and communicating with one another and performing tasks, our brain is actually broken up into a bunch of discrete modules, and they can talk to one another, they can change uh, sort of membership in different networks uh, as the need arises Uh Parts of the brain are slightly synchronous. A lot of the brain is very desynchronized. What happens is if I were to get drowsy and begin to fall asleep and you were measuring my brain waves, you'd find that my brain began to, that connectivity began to disintegrate Uh, and it would disintegrate more and more as I went further down that sort of diagonal line towards brain death. Um, (laughs) And and in fact, it wouldn't just disintegrate, the brain becomes hypersynchronous. So weirdly, the more um, depressed my consciousness becomes, the more synchronous my brain becomes. And for for those of the people in your audience who want to geek out on this, it's kind of related to Shannon's information theory. Um, If you and I are holding a telephone across the line and I say something to you and you receive it with complete fidelity, there has been no transformation of information across that line. But if you receive that information and you've there's been a transformation that's been, maybe you're using Google Translate because we speak different languages. That, um, that means that there has actually been a transformation on the information. That is a hallmark of more conscious brains. And the less conscious our brains become, their ability to calculate information and to transform information in the brain also goes down, which is why they become more hypersynchronous. So yeah, we lose that.
0: Look, um, one of the things that I've looked forward to in this interview is to ask you about AI because for one specific reason, the metaphor of neurons and like neural networks, and you were using the term, I think, in a a different way because you were actually talking about the brain. Mm -hmm. AI these days for the last five to seven years have been using this metaphor and maybe abusing it, I would say a little bit, because they're making the fairly direct uh, link between some version of brain theory about how neurons are supposed to work, and then they're saying that the systems they're making is in some way analogous to that, or that they're, they're at least aiming for that, but they're you know, being pretty deterministic, I feel, sometimes when they're talking about neural networks as if they were truly neural networks. I wanted you, who've been part of this debate, but also, you know, from both inside and outside the brain talk,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what do you make of this metaphor neural network when it is talking about zeros and ones?
1: Well, the first thing um, I make of it is that this, this world of computational scientists is trying to take, and they've been trying to do this for a very long time, frankly, in computational neuroscience before we called it AI uh, or any of that. They weren't data scientists back then they're trying to take all the wet work that forms the framework of of the processing powers of our brain and turn it into these bits and nodes. And so the various, very earliest neural networks um, would basically take a very simple circuit uh, that they would find in the brain. And it wouldn't even necessarily be the brain of a human. It could be the brain of a snail. Um, And you you would put neurons in a dish and you would send in a stimulus and lo and behold, you would get an output when you were measuring with an electrode at the other end. And you could start to characterize things by dropping, um, I mean, this is this is really getting under the hood here, but you could drop chemicals into the bath and turn off ion channels. And so you could, and then you could see how the connectivity would change. And so we began to characterize the properties, the computational properties, the, the ions that would flow across the surface of our nerve cells to make them work in fire and compute the way they did. And then what they did was that computational scientists is they took these properties and they modeled them as electrical circuits, and then they programmed that into computers. And those were our very first neural networks. And what artificial intelligence, which is a really big catch-all term, but let's, let's talk about neural nets and deep learning, What that's actually done is taken a number of networks and and computations that we sort of understand and sort of stack them in layers so that the inputs of one become the outputs of another. And uh, in some sense, our brain does work that way. We have nested networks that actually work on the information that comes through it. And we found that these networks have become really good at finding things that human brains can sometimes perceive. But the weird thing is we have lost track as those networks learn and modify themselves of actually what they're doing. So we can't even quite say that they're functioning like our wetware any longer. They're doing something. Um, And actually the ability to kind of go back in and look under the hood of an artificial network, say a convolutional or a recurrent neural net and understand what it's doing. it's, It's really important actually in this whole process, everything from eliminating bias in the output to... Um, just understanding what features uh, the network or that artificial intelligence is paying attention to in the world.
0: But you speak about electric circuitry, so I, I guess your explanation is that they are onto something. But I, I guess my, my my point was simply. One, our knowledge of the brain is continuously evolving because we're learning more and more and, you know, exponentially more, it seems to me over the last few years, but but there's so much left to learn. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm simply saying, since there is so much left to learn, wouldn't it be wiser not to kind of like overdo that metaphor? Because we're we're really just, I mean, I don't know if, we, if you understand 0.1% or if it's much less, you know, of, of how the brain works. It's, uh, you know, anybody's guess, I guess. Uh, but i wanted to take this idea of electric circuitry uh, for another spin because you you talk about the brain but uh, when we started this conversation we talked about wider things around consciousness and one of the things that links with this is sort of like how our bodies our entire bodies or at least more than the brain perceives things mm-hmm. So the sort of the phenomenology or perception, I've been, you know, very inspired by these, you know, by French thinkers, you know, Merleau-Ponty, these guys that are really talking about how the body itself is really the perceptive organ, not just the brain. How how does that relate? And, you know, this relates to in many traditions, right? The Chinese, of course, with their circuit system, you know, the Qi energy system and all of these things from, from that line of thinking. All of these generally talk about a perceptory organ that's not the brain, mm-hmm. but it is at least distributed. Maybe it emanates from the brain, but it is distributed throughout the body. What are what are some of your experiments telling you about that that aspect?
1: Um, I think that that these ancient um, systems are a thousand percent correct uh, in the sense that look. Um, you know sometimes i'll give a talk i would give a talk at a place like singularity and i would talk about you know exponential neuroscience and then inevitably somebody would say well god if our brains if we can read and write to them why not just put them like you know have have you ever seen that cartoon futurama where they have um i think it was done by the same people who did The simpsons but they actually have all these famous brains in these jars um like richard nixon and this and that and they communicate as if they're real like the real person this is also related to the idea could you if you could map the entire when i say neural networks now i am talking about the brain of an actual living being and put it either in silico or put it in some sort of hybrid silico stem cell structure you know would that thing be able to function and be conscious in and of itself the embodiment's actually a huge part of it it's um for instance, brains that are deprived of bodies for all kinds of reasons or the use of their body um, are incredibly different. So, one example would be take a person who was, say, born without a particular sense. Um, you know, maybe they uh, were born without hearing or born without vision. Uh, their brain kind of reorganizes itself so that it can take advantage of the sense organs that are available to it and it becomes much more sensitive in the auditory domain, for instance, if they lack vision or pressure domain. Um, And so it doesn't look like the brain of somebody who has vision. Uh, Further, people are augmenting themselves now, they're adding sense organs, right? Or people who have brain machine interfaces, and these have been given to them because, for instance, maybe they're paralyzed, their brain is completely reorganized. So if that's the case, how could embodiment not be one of the most important pieces of this puzzle? We, we move through we look at it as an entire unit, as an entire circuit, you know.
0: So, okay, so there are many questions here. Embodiment, I, I want to talk more about mm-hmm. that. But you, you mentioned the augmentation quest and the augmentation movement, which I guess is a social movement these days, yes. uh, you know, m- more than just a scientific direction or a, a bunch of people in like a complete subculture. It's actually a movement. Who are they? What do they want? And what? Are, yeah, what, what exactly are they trying to achieve? Uh, they maybe, maybe you. Um, and where do you stand on this augmentation? Because I'm guessing there's different things going on here. Some people really just want to be God. Uh, you know, I mean, why not, right? Or or approximate. Others are just sort of saying, look, there are some flaws here, or, or we want to fix people who are ill, or there are many, many perfectly legitimate uh, ways I want to point that out mm-hmm. to to be part of sort of an augmentation movement. Just describe it for me. Who are who are these people? Yeah.
1: Great question. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> by the way, there has been uh, an official cyborg movement. There's a cyborg foundation that was set up by Neil Harbison back in 2010. Uh, He did it with his friend, Moon Rebus. And so let me give you his story because it puts your question in a beautiful context. Uh, So Neil Harbison has uh, this form of colorblindness. It's actually quite common in men. Um, And rather than just go through life with that sort of slightly distorted perception in his visual field, uh, he tried to find somebody. He was in his 20s. He tried to find someone who would implant a multispectral camera in his skull. What this camera would do is it would image the world, um, basically in the visible electromagnetic spectrum. It would actually go a little bit into the ultraviolet and a little bit into the infrared as well. So slightly larger than the rainbow that we see. And it would translate this into vibration. And so as he's going around the world, navigating with his normal vision, he's getting all these additional visual inputs that are being translated into auditory inputs for him. And so he starts hearing the visual world. Uh, in, in a sense, he's almost become like an artificial synesthete, right? Somebody who can translate one sense to another. And like he'll say things like, uh, "I look at a friend's face, and I actually there's a piece of music in my mind that's associated with seeing them because I hear their face." Uh, so he's done some other things. Okay, so he put uh, a what he calls a solar heat clock in his in the crown of his head. And so essentially, I think when it's noon GMT, um, he basically feels the heat right in the center of his forehead. And then it rotates around his head as um, as the sun moves around the globe. And his idea there was to help him sort of viscerally and somatically understand and perceive the passage of time. Uh, he also has a Bluetooth embedded in a tooth. And he and some of his friends as part of the Cyborg Moon Movin can communicate by a Bluetooth that way. Uh, There's also Bluetooth embedded in this this skull device. And then Moonriva is his friend. She's got these uh, vibrational sensors. She's a dancer. And so she composes dances to things like earthquake and seismic activity. So now we get to the point. Are these people doing it because they're paralyzed? They need robotic vision because they're not sighted? None of those things are true. They just believe that their bodies and their brains their entire being are canvases for this experimentation around what it means to be alive and move through the world and perceive things. In, in some cases, like the vibrational sensor, someone else has done um, magnets so that they can sense magnetic north like a migrating bird. That's that's not what we came with. Do you, do you can you even imagine what the brain, your brain has to reorganize to, to perceive the data and pull out what's embodied. That's how how powerful embodiment is. It completely dictates the structure of your brain, that dance that they do. And so if you're an augmenter, you are now constantly altering the structure of your own embodiment. And therefore, you are constantly altering the structure of your neural nets. And you could say altering your consciousness in the process.
0: This is super interesting. I want to get to space in a second. But before we get there, can we just cover Neuralink for a second? Because I mean, all of what you're saying actually points to space. Because I want and let's let me before I forget, just formulate what I'm trying to get to with space. I want to talk about whether our quest, which seems to now be very serious of going into space, is going to alter the human race. And I know you have strong views on that because presumably the bodily perception. In space, as we know, even just gravity is different. So let's keep that thought in mind for just one second. Let's just go via Elon Musk for a minute, Mm -hmm. just because, you know, Neuralink specifically. Here is one specific strand of augmentation, which is invasive, Mm -hmm. right? So they are creating these chips uh, that have a multitude of access points into the brain, much more than any other system has had up until now what what is your observation on sort of what they're doing what could it possibly achieve what is it definitely not going to achieve
1: um what is it not going to achieve i can't answer yet Uh, the entire field of brain machine interfaces is, is an incredibly interesting one um let me just set this up by saying for people who may not understand as much as you do about an interface interfaces are anything a brain machine one that can read signals from the brain and talk to the outside world. And then potentially actually go the other direction, right back to the brain. And you can do this non-invasively or invasively, like you pointed out. The non-invasive stuff was like the electroencephalogram I mentioned. That's a reading device. Transcranial magnetic or direct current stimulation actually writes circuits of the brain. You can use ultrasound to write to the brain. And these don't even require cracking open the skull their fidelity is lower right now because the signal to noise ratio when you're far from the nerve cells, like on the outside is not as good as when you touch the brain. And so um, invasive brain machine interfaces have been used now for decades uh, to help people who are paralyzed um, as as an example. And the birth of entire field has been really in academic science. They've really made incredible strides. Um, I want to give a shout out to the BrainGate 2 Consortium, which has really done some amazing work uh, in this. Um, Okay, so what did Elon do that was different? Well, Elon has a lot of money and he doesn't have to go begging for grants at the NIH. So he had a lot more flexibility with the scientists. And what they did was they took the existing brain machine interfaces that were invasive, which were sharp electrodes. The most sophisticated one has 96 sharp electrodes. It's called a Utah array. What they did was they realized that there is brain damage that occurs a little bit when you put something that is rigid into the structure of the brain. So they turn these electrodes into almost threads. So they do a lot less damage and then the packing density of of the electrodes could go up. So they have about 3,100 electrodes in in the space that's smaller than what the 96 electrode array. Um, they also decrease the power consumption. This is a really important thing because a lot of people who have invasive brain machine interfaces would have like this huge power cord sticking out of their head. Um, he he has reduced it to something that looks more like a USB C port. Uh, by the way, BrainGate Two just made a huge stride. Um, they actually were able to wirelessly. Um, now do some read-write functions. So they just...
0: Uh, so the BrainGate Consortium is more of a scientific consortium. Correct. I
1: actually, I've had BrainGate patients myself in the operating room because the neurosurgeons that do the implants actually were... One of the groups is at Stanford where I used to be an anesthesiologist. So, um, so Elon has basically made it smaller, less damaging, higher packing density and lower power consumption, all things that are going to be important if there's going to be greater uptake of this kind of technology. Um, and the other uh, innovation is uh, he's created what he calls a, and by the way, it's his bioengineers and all the neuroscientists, but basically a neurosurgical robot. Cause first it's really hard to take, uh, electric threads and have a human place them into a brain. It's like sewing jello. So, uh, they have,
0: so he has productized. Very it, much. He is about to productize it, yeah. something that was an extremely cumbersome, expensive, and also sort of ethically an interesting uh, territory. But, but for sale, sure.
1: eventually, right? That's what he wants to do. Exactly. Right. Um, it will change us, though, right? Because originally, it's for people who, for instance, are paralyzed, and you put these devices in the motor cortex or the premotor cortex, but What if you start doing what Neil Harbison and Mongribis are doing, which is to have people who just want an invasive device for augmentation. And the less and less invasive and damaging the device becomes, the more and more you might see uptake in the general population, just like with CRISPR.
0: Well, so let's go there for a second. A couple of things before we go into sort of the the very uh, interesting futures that are coming out of this. But you, you mentioned CRISPR. Um, in our pre-conversation, you you talked about the implication of going from what you called more traditional Darwinian sort of genetics thinking to, to more the Lamarckian yeah. epigenetics thinking. Can you explain just a little bit the relevance of that? Because I know, I know it relates to uh, something that we've been dancing around a bit, which is this obsession around proteins. I mean, when I grew up, proteins was just something... You know, I was told to eat and then, you know, like if you ate too much of it, you became a boxer or something, right? (laughs) But it turns out it's actually a very interesting regulatory sort of principle and and it's just a very effective entity in the body. Um, I guess previously misunderstood, not as bad as, as my misunderstanding, but really just misunderstood as, you know, some nutrient of some sort. But it has this extremely active function. Can be turned on and off and do all kinds of things, mm-hmm. and obviously, getting us out of uh, COVID is one of them. W- what is this uh, Lamarckian epigenetics approach? Is that sort of uh, the way that the the CRISPR technology has been sort of? Um, that's within that paradigm for you.
1: It is um, also from the sense of speed. So um, mm-hmm. let's just step this back for one sec. We have a code of life, the DNA, right, and what. The sole purpose of DNA is to get translated into proteins. That's how important proteins are, right? And there is this Google Translate function in between called messenger RNA. And then there's some factories called translational RNA and ribosomes that actually follow the translator so that they can actually make the proteins. But your whole book of life is geared towards making those proteins. What, um, when you, proteins are so, I mean, the entire structural, your entire structural being is protein. You know, you, you have proteins. You have some fats, which are like you know the covering of your cells or around the nerve cells, so that they can insulate them to fire. You have water and some chemicals running around, but but really, so much of what you are is protein. And what happens is when your DNA is when that book of life, when there's a misspelling in the code, it makes perhaps it makes a substitution to make a slightly different kind of protein. And in order to form shapes and scaffolding, proteins fold. And so you can misfold proteins, and it causes all kinds of diseases, things like sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, etc. And so what, um, what CRISPR traditionally has w- looked to, to do, if it can, is perhaps correct some of the misspellings in the main book of life. Um, there are newer CRISPR technologies. It's basically the enzyme... Uh, they found new functions of the enzyme. Some of them can actually modify the messenger, the translator, the messenger RNA. And when you start to do that, you don't even have to change the original book. You can actually start modifying the translator and the expression of the proteins without altering the original code. That means two things. One, the code is not going to be permanently altered, so it won't be passed down to your progeny, right? So you're just altering things in real time as they're made. Um, and so. It can be transient when you do that. Um, on the other hand, that's probably very much in temporal terms how epigenetics works, right? Because Darwinian evolution is slow. There's a mutation. That mutation um, that uh, an organism has, it goes out into its world and if it's bad for them, they die off before they reproduce again. And if it's good for them or gives them an advantage, they keep on reproducing and more and more of this mutation that's adaptive gets out into the world. It can take generations. Epigenetics is, uh, you know, I am, I am sedentary or I'm really active. And I begin to add um, things like methyl groups, remove them, add them back to parts of, of the original code so that the messenger RNA that's made, the translator and the proteins become different. And it happens quickly. It happens quickly.
0: So this kind of soft inheritance, I mean, it was very controversial until very recently, like the mechanisms behind it. But now because of the, uh, I guess, the impact and and sort of fairly visible idea that that CRISPR turned into, I I guess there aren't that many other ways of explaining what's actually happening, you know, on the theoretical level.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, If you make so many changes, whether it's to your genome, whether it's by adding new sense organs or modifying yourself with an exoskeleton, um, all of those things are going to have immediate changes on your brain, your body, your perception, all of these closed loops and you will evolve. And so essentially I would almost liken this to human directed evolution and it will happen within a generation, not over many generations.
0: Well, so let, let's go there because human-directed evolution. This is where we were going to get to space. Because, I mean, a lot of the scientists, and including you, that are interested in these things, eventually want to go to other planets and and explore. As you guys are explorers, we are all explorers in a certain sense. But it goes without saying that the technology is needed to get further than we have been, right? Oh, you know, for the last uh, decades in, in space, we need something more. It's not just propulsion. We're going to need some clever stuff, mm-hmm. both to support the journey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think you you come in there to to grow these plants. Like we need nutrition. We need energy uh, beyond just, you know, fuel, rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, but what interests me slightly more is the sociology of space that's perhaps where i and you know where, where i would want to probe a little bit what what's going to happen once we start to colonize space in in real ways even just the moon
1: mm-hmm.
0: and mars and 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 you know the space station with more than you know three people at a time Like what starts to happen to humans and their brains, even before we get to augmentation and what will need to happen in in terms of augmentation to really get anywhere with with this experiment?
1: Well, this is that um, that question you originally asked about embodiment and how does that affect our consciousness, right? right? We're changing the external environment and our bodies will respond accordingly. And that response to the changes, these drastic changes in inputs from the external environment are going to fundamentally change our brains. And now the question becomes, how long do you have to be up there for them to change your brains permanently? And we don't have an answer to this. Station is a bit different, for instance, than the lunar surface or Mars, because station is microgravity, whereas, which means almost zero, it's almost zero G, whereas the moon's surface is one-sixth Earth gravity and Mars is one-third. The thing is, if you put somebody in that situation for long enough and their bodies and brains begin to adapt, who are they going to be? So this is another form of human-directed evolution. By the way, I love um, science fiction. There, um, there are a series of novels that I read that got turned into, I think it's now an Amazon crime series called The Expanse, and is part of the human expansion outwards into the solar system there are earthbound humans, there are Martian humans, and then there are humans who live in the asteroid belt called belters, and there they have the least gravity. And especially in the novels, you can't really tell so much in a show, but you can see that these belters are completely different. Their bodies are elongated. They don't need the same muscle mass. They don't need the same bone density to support themselves. And so they've actually evolved into something beyond Homo sapiens. So what what would that affect? So first of all, people who can tolerate people in closed environments are going to do much better. They're gonna be selected for. um, People who automatically have mutations that help them survive radiation uh, are going to be selected for. um, But people's bodies are even going to change. And so everything everything from our interpersonal interactions to what we find attractive is even gonna change. Right. So, if you've been seeing somebody that's sort of got an elongated or pointy head for a while on a nine-month journey, and then suddenly you get back to Earth, everybody's going to look very odd to you. Um, so, I-
0: but also, but also, presumably, in 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 this back in sort of Darwinian thinking, uh, you know, you, you're looking for mates that are fit for fit for carrying offspring and carrying you into the future, and presumably. If you're optimizing for a space traveler, we will start to optimize not for kind of the, the typical human curves and shapes, or 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 the kind of intelligence that maybe mm-hmm. you know gets you through an evening watching Netflix or something, but towards something that actually optimizes for space travel and exploration. Right? So these are different things.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, while, are you, while you're on that topic, I've been telling some friends of mine for a long time that. What we were really going to need, especially with the longevity revolution, are artificial wombs. Um, You know, and Israeli scientists last month announced that they were able to grow up the first um, mouse embryos and essentially artificial wombs outside a mouse mother. And the embryonic um, sort of growth patterns looked roughly normal. Um, So why is that important? Well, one, I've been thinking about multi-generational ships for a long time to not just explore our, our solar system, but get beyond, at least get to perhaps Alpha Centauri. And if you do that, um, what are we gonna do? Are we going to just naturally sort of create children and have children in space? I think it's more likely that we will either take our embryos with us, like so fertilized embryos that are frozen for the journey, um, and we will p- probably just them in artificial wombs. So when we're ready to have the kids, because we need them, um, we'll just grow them up as, as needed. And I, I think that's a much, that, that's the more likely, more likely scenario. And that means that on those generations, those early generations that are space explorers, the grandparents, the parents, and the children might all be completely different species. <laughs>
0: right they they won't they won't share any expe- common experience right. and the kids will have never been on earth that kind of oh, thing.
1: oh yeah um, imagine what it's like to even look back at uh, let's say you're somewhere where you can actually go look back at the earth and gaze back at the earth and won't even have any feeling towards it in in a way that you were
0: well actually. wouldn't the wouldn't the theory be that by the time we really get there our uh, augmented reality and virtual reality is so strong that we would embed these uh, experience space traveling mm-hmm. people with the true experience of what an earthling should feel and sense like and and think like I you guess. mean
1: like the the holodeck
0: yeah, <laughs> some sort of educational device so yeah. I, the same the same thing that Arnold did when he had to train when he came back from that island in uh, you know in that movie where he. Uh, had been like experimented on and it came back to society and needed to learn to be a human.
1: I think that um, when we first thought about space travel, VR, AR, mixed reality was not even a thing. So the holodeck seemed really far out there. But I, I think you're absolutely right. The Simulation is going to become a huge part of our um, training for space, our understanding of novel environments, um, the ability to do simulation. But let's also remember that AR and VR forms, of, especially VR, of non-invasive neuromodulation. Remember I was saying you can non-invasively write to the brain? Well, the brain naturally, rather than being directly written to by electricity or ultrasound, the way the brain naturally learns is through its environment, through its embodiment. So if you create artificial environments for your current embodiment to interact with, you will definitely change those neural networks. So it's a very powerful form of writing to the brain, and so the more sophisticated we get at stimulating new environments, um, the more we're going to direct human evolution in in that way too.
0: I wanted to take us down a notch because we could talk for hours about this. It's you know colonization, asteroid mining. Uh, and I do want to ask you about therapeutic hypothermia mm-hmm. and the stuff that you could contribute on this journey. But uh, uh, but I do also want to get to the regula- uh, regulatory path here because it's all wonderful to talk about sci-fi and what might happen. But one of the bigger challenges, I think, with even pretty pedestrian technologies is that we need to somehow... Have a true debate about what we are building and what it's leading to and ideally what we want to create as opposed to just what some individual or corporation or government starts to create on their own because they want to have fun or or earn money or whatever motivation they have it could be altruistic or otherwise but um so i don't know do you want to handle the uh, regulation first or do you want to go to this uh, the fun stuff which is you know how you're going to actually enable these space travelers (laughs)
1: Um, I think we should take just a moment to talk about regulation and let's talk about it in the context of cryogenics. Why not? Let's just combine the two. Um, <clears throat> regulation is is going to be a huge problem simply because technology is really accelerating at this exponential pace right now. Um, most, most of the people, it's usually in governments, who are dealing with things like regulation are often of a slightly older generation, or at the very least uh, their backgrounds, the things that drew them to public service, did not immerse them in science and tech, that's just not where they were. I will say that it's different actually depending on which kind of government you go to. Uh, Chinese government, for instance, is made up of a huge number of scientists and technologists. Um, Xi Jinping has been very good about recruiting his best and brightest. Um, So they, I would say the Chinese actually have a better sense of the implications of technology, um, but there's really no regulatory path there, right? They just do what government wants. Um, In other societies, uh, we're only beginning to have a healthy debate. And um, I'll give you an example. Let's say there are about four major companies right now that cryogenically preserve people. So essentially, before you die, They actually have to perfuse your body with something that will almost, it's not like embalming, but actually it's almost like putting antifreeze through you so that they can preserve you so that you can be, say, woken up at a future date. So in addition to what some people think of as the ethical implications of that, just because it makes their, it just, it doesn't sit well with them. There there are the other implications, like how do you create a contract with a company um, to be, unfrozen in 400 years when you don't know if the company will exist in 400 years what happens if there are people who are say religious and we don't even know if it's going to be the current world religions maybe there are new religions that arise and this particular group thinks that this is an abomination and they pull the plug on all the freezers uh what happened and have they committed murder or (laughs) Have the people in cryogenic suspension been hurt in some way? Um, What happens to if they have children? What happens to their children and their children's children? How do they apportion um, if they're defrosted at some future time? And it's a great, 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 great grandchildren that are alive. um, Do they become their custodians? Is there some link to them? How do you create um, financial planning? Right, legal kind, everything is just up in the air. And so, um, and that doesn't even touch the other kinds of ethical frameworks that go around this. And there are huge movements of people just like the augmentation movement or the I should be able to CRISPR myself movement, or I should be able to replace my real arm with a robotic one. There are the people who say, "This this is not natural. This is not how God made us. We shouldn't be interfering with any of this. And so you even have that dichotomy. And that brings up yet another problem If regulation never catches up or people on the black market begin to augment with, say, less invasive or minimally invasive brain machine interfaces or devices that actually increase uh, muscular strength, um, they are going to have, those people, an advantage, a competitive advantage over those who chose not to augment. And now you're going to have entire, and we talk about haves and have-nots now right? This is not even a socioeconomic argument. This is going to be a speciation argument. This is going to be like humans relative to their nearest primate relatives, and you may literally see an entirely new race of homo sapiens something um, that actually has complete dominance over the existing humans on the planet. And look at what we did in terms of animal testing and experimentation. Are they going to begin to consider normal humans as other, less than, and less evolved, and experiment on everyone else? I mean, it's, it's a huge... <laughs> this goes so far beyond privacy and data.
0: I agree with that. So if you look at that panopticon and then think about the current space treaties, you've got the Moon mm-hmm. Treaty, not ratified by the US, Russia and China. You got the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 which you informed me about uh, and I can't remember exactly who ratified it now. But anyway, these are like two or three treaties and that's all we have and they don't talk about any of this. They talk about mostly about you know property rights and stuff like that and, and jurisdictional issues which they probably also just sketch. What kind of frameworks are we looking for here?
1: So the property right issue is actually a very interesting one because at the moment um, we have a model on this planet of nation states, governments, and then certain kinds of property rights that are accorded and recognized by those governments. And then there are transactions that take place to enforce those rights and contracts. Uh, When you go to space, we have no comprehensive approach to what this means. People would like to say that the solar system should be all of humanity's, you know, legacy and right to. However, if you happen to be in a country that's a lower middle income country and you haven't launched anything, um, and and in some countries, governance have not only launched things, but their private space industries are so powerful that corporations are launching. What do you really think is going to happen practically? No matter how much lip service is actually given to the idea of property rights uh, for all. And I mean, there are, trillions and trillions, for instance, just dollars available because of the moon. A single asteroid back in the mid-90s when I was actually looking at asteroid missions and asteroid mining missions, after you took into account losses and launch costs, was worth eight trillion-ish out there. So cislunar space, basically, whoever dominates, whichever country or government, who knows? And then the other issue is, right, you've got the Chinese Russian lunar base. Then you have the eight countries that have signed the Artemis Accords, which were written by the United States with input from from these countries. And inherently, they're basically saying that we're going to the moon with completely different ideologies of who controls what, what it means to be human, how we share property rights, whether we infringe upon other people's property rights. Um, Whether we care for an injured astronaut that comes from another country, I mean, they're they're quite different um, documents that we've gone forward with. And so I think that we almost need the version of like a Magna Carta for outer space so that we as a as a species can say, okay, you know, we didn't do everything all that well this first time around. Let's leave our junk behind. And as a spacefaring species, try and go out. Uh, to explore space with a com- with a different, more evolved spirit. Um,
0: you know w- what you're saying here makes me realize that this whole fear of aliens is actually somewhat misplaced. In that, I would fear these evolved humans much more than I would fail a highly evolved alien that has. Perhaps, you know, I conjecture that they would have traveled, you know, for centuries or, through space and would have evolved some sort of consciousness to go back to that uh, about their space in the cosmos, as opposed to some evolved human 10 or 15 years from now who comes back to space, to, to Earth and says, hey, I'm bigger than you and, now. <laughs> right? Or I'm,
1: half, yeah. I'm a half robot now, so.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. Um.
1: I would certainly like to believe that any advanced species were advanced in all ways, including um, that sort of respect for all life forms. I'm not 100% sure. Most of me thinks that they probably would have destroyed themselves if they couldn't get there. But it is possible that a very dominant species might have uh, continued to flourish with, say, a very hierarchical or militaristic type of structure. Um, and that is, that's possible. Uh, I still feel like we need to get our own house in order. And as a species, we should acknowledge our limitations, um, fear, greed, all the things that drive us to, to hoard, to, to turn people who don't look or speak like us into other, we we just need to clean that up a bit and sort of raise our collective consciousness as a species now. And here, I mean it in a different way than we were talking about earlier, Um, because really as we go out to explore space, we don't want to turn into a new kind of colonizer. We don't want to turn into a new kind of military dominant structure because, I don't know, I think our species will will move in the wrong direction, if that's the case. So
0: where does does all of this lead us? Uh, I know you you have also, in fact, been involved in the SETI complexity group that are looking for for life, you know, outside of this. But leaving that aside for a moment, where does this all all leave us? So, you know, people like you are thinking about this. For me, there are so many thoughts about What you said about cleaning up our own house and getting our house in order before we actually get to all these very complicated problems. But it also strikes me, some things will happen much faster than we think, and others will indeed take Mm -hmm. longer. And we will we do have a little bit of time. But what is your advice to someone, I mean, young or old, who just is stimulated by these questions? Where where does one get the experience, the knowledge, the right Ethics, all of what we've talked about in order to be a fruitful, positive contributor to this debate?
1: Um, There's so many things there. Uh, For one, you know, when I've been asked by parents who have children how to prepare the kids for this kind of a future, um, I tell them to turn their children into makers. And by this, I mean, you know, people understand sort of what a maker space is. You know, you have this idea you can go to this place that's kind of a workshop, you can build things, you can learn how to program you could. My idea is you have a child that has an idea in their head, help them figure out how to manifest that into the real and embodied world. And that connection between what's in here and in their heart and its appearance in the world will change them forever. It will actually empower them. But the process also of going through the frustration and iteration of trying to build and manifest and create will give them life lessons that will stand them forever. Uh, The the second piece of it is, um, we are becoming fast a society of screens and we live in virtualized worlds. And this takes us back to the embodiment issue. I think that there might actually be, for those who can blend, um, who can blend sort of a nativism in the digital world with the ability to move through embodiment, I think they're going to have a major competitive advantage over those who only exist in one world or another. Um, So I would actually encourage younger people to actually re-experience what embodiment is. Um, And by the way, get back into nature before we destroy some of our last raw and beautiful places.
0: It's such a great point, right? Because this is not just about a cognitive experience. What you're talking about here is we also have to know what we want to preserve. I think about that every day as I go out. In yeah. nature, right? Because if you lose sight of what you were trying to preserve, then it doesn't matter how smart you become and how many degrees mm-hmm. you 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 summon. I guess you know. Um,
1: it, it doesn't matter at all. In fact, um, look, I actually feel like when when you are in nature, or or perhaps with um, animals as well, people have this experience. But there is something when you are alone with sort of that raw power and majesty of, of the natural world that. You know, we were talking about embodiment and ancient cultures who felt like consciousness was also located in other places. There's a resonance you begin to develop, and you you don't forget that necessarily when you come back into built spaces. In that connection to this raw, natural world, this wildness, I think is so important. I can't even tell you all the many ways, but it just fundamentally changes you as a human.
0: It reminds me just lastly of one experience I had. I was at this uh, big conference of very senior startup founders, many of them in in the UK. And they had been going through a lot of speeches for like a couple of days. And I had really not heard any applause, right? Because they were all sort of like nodding, like, I know this or, you know, deep down, I already know this because, you know, everyone's smart in the room, Mm -hmm. And then comes David Attenborough on stage. And after an interview, you know, there with David Attenborough, everybody stands up and they can't stop applauding. Mm. And I think it's not just because he's like a bit of a hero, but it is because he enables people to get in touch with Mm -hmm. part of their selves that they, I think, yeah, it it created an emotion in people that they realized, you know, yes, we have created all these fantastic companies. Yes, you know, many of us created unicorns. We are wealthy. We can do all these things. But David managed to touch them at a more fundamental place where they realized something about their size in the universe. Mm -hmm. And it was just a very profound experience because I had walked around there and felt slightly small myself in front of all these very successful people. But it was a very grounding experience uh, ending, I guess, to that event. And I, uh, so what you said just reminded me because it's all relative in the end to, to kind of a, a a bigger standard. And it doesn't really matter how high you are on any kind of ladder when it comes to these really fundamental questions about where we are heading. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And I wanted, you know, if you have a, a last observation on how consciousness and how your project sort of ties into this, uh, um, You know share something with my listeners
1: well this this letting go this feeling i had since i was a child looking at the stars you feel so small and so big at the same time and that experience is something that periodically everyone should go back out in their lives and recapture that 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 meaning of being here and being embodied and i wanted to say one last thing Without embodiment and all the pain that comes with embodiment, and I don't even just mean physical pains, but I mean the attachments, the emotional hurt, that's the growth edge. That is your growth edge. With the longevity movement, by the way, I remember, and I brought this up uh, at the X Prize because they were ideating about a longevity prize, and I said to them, one thing we have to be very careful about is what happens when... You get to a point where the technology allows us to preserve ourselves in these extraordinarily youngish bodies. Where is that growth edge for learning? Because if you talk to a lot of people who are older, they will tell you that their learning experiences came from experiencing their bodies and how their world changed through their aging bodies. And I want to make sure that we preserve our emotional growth. while we are partaking of all this amazing technology.
0: That is a fascinating thought to end on. I had really never considered this, but I guess there must be sci-fi books about this where they're projecting that the entire population, you know, is 18 years old because that's- Yeah,
1: what if you're stuck in your 30 year old body?
0: <laughs> yeah, or like whatever age, she, pick your age, pick your age, <laughs> freeze it at that age, right? And just say like, no more growth, please. Yeah. Fascinating. These are these are big questions. Look, this uh, is uh, turning into my longest podcast. I hope I, I broke a couple of promises to the to the listener, but you know, I guess if they stuck stuck around till now, they must be really interested in the future. <laughs> so I thank you for sticking around. Oh, it's around. My pleasure.
1: I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm so glad <laughs> you have just listened to episode 101 of the Futurized Podcast with host Trond Arne Inheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of augmented consciousness. In this conversation, we talked about heightened states of awareness, consciousness, the augmentation movement, human hibernation during space travel, and the need for regulation in outer space. My takeaway is that outer space, or when space-traveling humans come back, I shall fear humans more than the unknown, such as aliens. Beyond that, I find human augmentation both fascinating and frightening. It will undoubtedly happen. In fact, it is already happening. How soon? How extreme? What will the impact ultimately be? I quite enjoy talking to smart people who think about these things and are involved in shaping our future. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 84, The Origins and Future of Open Science, Episode 79 on Futuristic AI, or Episode 68 on Industrial-Grade Mixed Reality. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.